When we see Jesus, we are blessed with active grace. That's going to be the theme of our series in Elijah. We are blessed with active grace. We join the story of 1 Kings around 900 years BC in one of the darkest moments in Israel's sad history. It has been some 58 years since God's people were divided into two. God's people were rent asunder into the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south. And we pick up reading about what is going on in the life of Israel. Two things to reflect upon as we familiarize ourselves with the context. First, the leaders. Second, the people. In the 58 years since the kingdom had divided, Israel had had seven kings, each one as wicked, if not more wicked, than the last. We had Jeroboam, then Nadab, then Besha, Elah, Zimri, Omni, now Ahab. And they are an idolatrous, evil, murderous, treasonous brood of vipers. They are just the worst group of leaders you could possibly imagine. And the worst of them all has been reigning for 22 years. We read of Ahab in verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. A remarkable statement given how bad all those were that had come before. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. When we read of King Ahab, we are reading of one bad, bad king. I asked our resident Old Testament expert, uh, Bill Fulalove, about how he would summarize the life of Ahab. And Bill has done 10 years or more study in the Old Testament. He is doing a PhD in Semitics. And his his sort of academic summary was, all bad, all the time. (laughs) A decade and thousands of dollars to say all bad all the time. And that's... Actually, a great, a great summary, because the reason we study is to make things clear, and Bill has, has done that for us. <laughs> all bad, all the time. That's the state of the leaders in Israel at this time. And what about the people? How have they responded to this leadership? They have responded with gleeful and exuberant wickedness. The people themselves have not been a dissenting voice to their leadership, but have joined in the game. True worship has disappeared from the land of Israel. Gross idolatry has become rampant. They are in a deplorable state, flagrantly and grievously departing from God's ways. If we had more time, we would reflect upon the important lesson that is in that forest, that as the leaders go, so the people. Again and again, the text makes clear that a nation's fortunes are in many ways dependent upon their leaders. A church's fortunes are in many ways dependent upon their leaders. The fortunes of your own home are in many ways dependent upon the leadership that you exert in it. As the leaders go, so the people. And it's into this context of evil leaders and just a people who are an absolute nightmare that Elijah enters. We're going to see two things in the text. We're going to see two things that God does for his people. We're going to look at those two things and then try and apply them to ourselves. Two things then that God does for his people. Let's start in verse 1 where we see that God makes plans for his people. God makes plans for his people. Elijah appears very suddenly. He is a major figure in biblical history, and yet he has not been mentioned up until this 
point. Everything seems to be falling apart. Everyone is capitulating to Baal. And then all of a sudden, we are face to face with this prophet. We are eyeball to eyeball with him. And his appearance is quite jarring from a literary perspective. As we read through this book, we're used to getting a bit more of an introduction when major characters are uh, brought into the book. We expect to hear something about his uh, uh, genealogy and his family of origin. We expect to get a couple of points from his resume. We expect a, a flash of the driver's license to acquaint ourselves with him before we read about all that he does. Instead of this, we get verse 1. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. It's an awfully abrupt entrance. An awfully abrupt entrance. We've never heard of this guy. We've never seen him before on the pages of this book. And all of a sudden, here he is laying down the law before the king of Israel. And as if he shows up and says, Ahab. Ahab, in all your evil and in all your wickedness, you did not see me coming. And you did not see that God is coming. But because you have given no glory to his name, he will no longer send you his reign. He is judging you because of how you have misled the people. One commentator helps drive this to our point that God makes plans for his people by saying, to see Elijah appear so suddenly reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God, in unexpected places, has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God always has his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. Therefore, I love the end of this quote, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Wherever evil flourishes, it flourishes superficially. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there, ready with his man and his movement, ready with his plans to ensure that his cause will never fail. When evil appears to be winning in 1 Kings 17, God already has a plan in place. God makes plans for his people. We'll return to that thought to apply it to ourselves in a moment. Secondly, though, let's see that the second thing our text teaches us about how God deals with us. First, he makes plans for his people. And secondly, God provides for his people. Let's try catch a, 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 a grip of the flow of verses 1 through 6 here. In verse 1, Elijah appears before Ahab and he brings the hammer down upon him, which was an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Uh, Elijah would have known full well that uh, death was the likely result for his bold approach before the king. In verse 2, God tells Elijah what to do next. And I love the sequence of that. Elijah has been given this task from the Lord and he's prayed about it and he's psyched himself up and he's burst into the presence of the king and he's told him what for and then he realizes, I don't have an exit strategy. I don't know what I'm meant to do next. And right on time, the Lord appears. The Lord is really early. He is never late. And he comes to Elijah with his word. And his word to Elijah is great because it's probably a similar thought to what Elijah was thinking himself. The Lord appears and says, go hide, go hide, go eastward to the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. And there you'll be able to drink from the brook and the ravens will feed you. 
In verses 3 and 4 of chapter 17, we see that Elijah is more than happy to oblige. He sets off and he is replaying God's message in his head. Eastward uh, to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, there I'll be able to drink from the brook and the ravens will feed me. And I wonder if he kind of thought, did, did I catch that bit right? Is that, is that what he said? And Anyway, on Elijah it goes. Then in verse 5, Elijah arrives there, takes a sip from the brook, he looks up to the sky and sees that remarkably and miraculously the ravens are obliging with God's command as well. God is in control of all of his creation and when he bids the ravens go, they go. I love to think of this scene and don't be afraid to use your sanctified imagination when it comes to these narrative texts. How did this work? You know, did the ravens sort of fly overhead and drop bread and drop meat from on high and Elijah kind of scurried around at the bottom and tried to catch it? Or, you know, did the raven just sort of fly right down and stop beside him and kind of put it on the ground there and look at Elijah and Elijah kind of looks back at him and says thanks and then thinks, I'm talking to a raven, right? You know, like, how, how did this scene play out? What kind of bread was it? Elijah, I don't know. Not Panera's apple scrapple. Um, what kind of meat was it? We don't know. Cook it thoroughly. (laughs) It's an incredible scene that that plays out before us. An incredible scene where we see that God is providing Elijah with everything he needs to complete the work that he's given him. Everything that he needs to complete the work that he's given him. Note, this isn't some crazy health and wealth thing. The Lord provides for you. He didn't provide Elijah with a Ferrari. He provided him with what he needed to do the work that he had been given. And this is the Lord's pattern. He always provides for his people. They're the two things that we learn from this text. God makes plans for his people and God provides for his people. How, though, do we apply that to ourselves? These texts written some 3,000 years ago. Two things to reflect upon together. First of all, God makes plans for his people and he provides for his people. And child of God, he does the same for you. He does the same for you. He has plans for you. His plans began in eternity past. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 that God set his love upon his children from all eternity past. He has a sovereign love that he has declared would be ours before the very beginning of time. And so in a day that was every bit as evil as Elijah's, there was a more sudden appearance from a greater prophet we know as Jesus. God's plans from eternity past coming to fruition as Jesus entered into this world to walk upon this earth in human form as the table reminds us so powerfully of. To answer the problem of our sin. A plan that is in place to deal with our sinfulness that we might be with him for eternity, that anyone who believes in him can be secure for eternity, knowing that heaven is theirs if they have forgiveness in Jesus. And God's plans, which are eternal, don't just stop in eternity, they continue for us here in time. I don't know what situation you're in right now where it's just really hard to see what God is up to. A situation of evil, a situation of darkness, of sorrow, where it's just really hard to see how can there be a good plan in Perhaps you've been sinned against by someone else, received 
anger or apathy or betrayal from those who are meant to be faithful to you. Perhaps you're in a mess of your own making this morning, dealing with the consequences of bad decisions, caught right now in some secret sin. Perhaps you're not dealing with the consequence of any particular sin, but you're dealing with the brokenness of this world. You're dealing with cancer and chemo, with death and with grief. What circumstance are you in right now that you just can't see how the Lord is at work? Isn't it encouraging to look at Elijah and know that when things look bleakest, God's plan is already in motion? And that because of his sovereign love for you, when things look bleakest for you, his plan is already in motion? The cogs are already turning. Things are already falling into place. That his good and perfect plan for you will be realized. Not so that you might have Ferraris, but that you might have all that you need in the gospel. God has plans for you. If that's hard to believe, and it is sometimes, then be encouraged that not only does he have plans for you, but he provides for you. He provides for you in the meantime. If you are in the midst of a situation and you just have no idea how you're going to make it through, know that you are going to make it through because your God is going to provide for you. I love the way the text lays it out that the ravens bring Elijah bread and meat every morning and every evening. The Lord doesn't say to Elijah, go forth to the Kareth ravine and you shall drink from the brook and you shall have a massive fridge stocked to last you for a month. God doesn't give grace in one down payment. He gives it in installments. Grace like manna. Grace for the day. He provides for you on a daily, hourly basis. And so if you're in a situation and you don't know how you're going to make it through, you're going to make it through. You're going to make it through because this morning God has given you the grace to make it through this evening. And do you know what he's going to do this evening? He's going to give you the grace to make it through the night. And when you wake up for breakfast, you know what's on the menu. He's going to provide for you moment by moment, bit by bit, in faithful installments so that you will keep your eyes on him. If he did give us one down payment, if he gave us a massive fridge, I would go and I'd eat a lot. And I'd forget about it. He gives us it in these installments so that we will keep our eyes on him. We will focus our attention upon him. And when those difficult times comes, then we will find that he gives us the grace to endure. I don't know if you sometimes look at people and think, how on earth do they make it through those circumstances? Or how on earth will I ever make it through that circumstance if it ever happens to me? And in a sense, the answer is, you can't. Because right now, God hasn't given you the grace to deal with that circumstance. But if it comes, if it comes, he will. Know that God has plans. Know that God provides. We apply this text to ourselves by realizing, yes, he has plans. Yes, he has provision. He does that for his people and he does that for you. Second, last way that we apply it to ourselves this morning is to realize that God has plans and God has provisions and he has given us these both. But he also has plans and provisions that, <laughs> that he will dispense through you. Plans and provision that he will deliver through you. So the plan of God was brought into reality through the work of Elijah those 3,000 years ago. And the plan of God for our earth today will be brought into being. It will be realized. It will be executed, not by a sprinkle of fairy dust, not by the snap of a divine finger, though he could certainly do that so he wished. The plans of God for our day today will be executed through you, his church. He has 
set up this divine economy where his will is realized as his church is active. On the planning front, let me give you two great examples of how this has been true here in our midst this last month or so. The first one comes from Bill Fulove, who I've been praying for a little over a year that the Lord would help us as a church put something in place to really be intentional about reaching people who are far from God, reaching people who don't know the name of Jesus. He got a a call one day from one of our members who wanted to come in and see him, and our member came in and sat down and basically began to sort of do his best to like persuade Bill that we should do Christianity Explored. And Bill was like, you don't need to persuade me. I've been praying for this. I've wanted this to happen. And how did it come about? Not by some decree from on high, from the Lord or from a pastor, but from the plan of a member of our church. The Lord had put upon his heart to pursue this thing that he'd been given. Second and very similar example came from me. I was praying the Lord would really help us as a church get our arms around the need to be active in local mercy for us to be a church that is known as a place that reaches out to the poor, reaches out to the needy, and known as a place that does more than just write a check, known as a place that has a, a practical, tangible love for those who are in need. And I was wrestling with this idea when one of our deacons called me up. I sat down over lunch, and he said, I don't know if you're going to go for this, but I've been thinking a lot about it, and I've got this multi-stage plan about how we can be more involved in local mercy. You know? I smile, sit back, and see God's plans come into place through God's people. God is at work to execute his plans through his people, through you, his church. God is also at work to provide for the needs of the world through us, his people. As he has provided for our needs, so he now works through us to provide for the needs of the world. How is it that the lost are to be won for Christ? Our confession puts it beautifully when it says that the church exists for the gathering of the elect, for the gathering of those who are currently far from God. That is why we are here. The lost are to be won through us. How is it that the poor are to be served? They are to be served at the physical hands and feet of Jesus that come through us. How is it that the sorrowful are to be comforted? It is by the fellowship that can be found in this place. How is it that the rebellious can be warned and rebuked? It is through the tender admonitions of this place, his church, God's provision for his world is realized through uh, the action of his people. You see the flow of grace here. God comes with his plans and blesses us with his provision that we might turn and execute his plans and provide for those who are in need. Why? Because as we have been loved, so we also love. And it's an exciting thing for me to think about this church right now, this sort of season we've been given. What our church looks like in five years, what our church looks like in ten years, what it looks like in a generation from now. Under God's providence, it's kind of up to us. It's kind of up to us. What are we going to do with this season that we've been given? How are we going to build on the great heritage that we've been passed? How are we going to execute those plans? How are we going to be that provision? that the Lord has been to us. It's an exciting, exciting prospect. Elijah teaches us, he shows us, that God has plans, that God makes provision. We have all of that in the gospel, and now it's ours to share.
This is active grace. 